Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From the plots of Hollywood movies to the roots of Christianity, many see value in adversity and suffering. Yet, the great majority of us do our very best to avoid suffering in our own lives. So should we conclude that the value of adversity and suffering is an illusion? Or is it a vital and critical element in building personality and enabling a meaningful, fulfilling and significant life? Joining us to debate the value of suffering are Britain's most beloved psychotherapist and author of Fat is a Feminist Issue, Susie Orbach, renowned transhumanist Anders Sandberg, and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Bristol, Javi Carell. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, philosopher Julian Baggini. Hello and welcome to this session at the How the Light Gets in Festival 2021 online edition Obviously, our subject for this session is if it doesn't kill you, that famous aphorism of Nietzsche's. But if it doesn't kill you, does it really make you stronger? Well, from the plots of Hollywood movies to the roots of Christianity, many do see a value in adversity and suffering, be it in character building boot camps or overcoming the trials of difficult childhoods or adult life. Yet, the great majority of us, of course, do our very best to avoid suffering in our own lives. So, should we conclude that the value of adversity and suffering is an illusion. Is it perhaps a hangover from Christianity that modernity needs to exercise? Or is it a vital and critical element in building personality and enabling a meaningful, fulfilling and significant life? Or have we even got a better answer to any of those from our esteemed panel? We have Harry Carell. She is professor of philosophy who knows a bit about suffering having been diagnosed at the age of 35 with a very rare respiratory disease, which at the time was, she was told was likely to kill her within a decade. And this experience for her very much turned her philosophy into a discipline of immediate practical concern. And one fruit of that was her much acclaimed book, Illness. Susie Orbach is one of the UK's most influential and should we say beloved psychotherapists. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and her latest books are In Therapy and Bodies. Anders Sandberg is a researcher, science debater, futurist and transhumanist. His research centers on the ethical and social implications of social technologies and human enhancement. So the way we're going to begin is we're going to invite each of our speakers just to spend three minutes setting out their initial thoughts on this theme and really answering that question of whether or not this is all a load of romantic nonsense. Should we conclude the value of adversity and suffering is actually an illusion? Can we start with you, Javi? Thanks, Julian. And hi, everyone. I guess my answer is very much rooted in the uh, pragmatic, but not just pragmatic, also philosophical sense that adversity is not something we get to choose to contend with or not. So adversity is very much part and parcel of human life. And that is something that philosophers need to take very seriously. Because when we think about the good life, we can't just say, well, the good life is where everybody is healthy, happy, in love and content in every respect. 
I mean, we can say that, but that would be a very naive and very um, a, a, a limited picture that would be very disconnected from the lives we actually lead. So a much better starting point is something that you, we could call roughly the, the facts of life, namely that we are always vulnerable to suffering and vulnerable to affliction, that we are dependent on others for the prevention or the uh, amelioration of suffering, and that we are afflicted in many ways over the course of our life. It could be physically, it could be mentally, uh, it could be in a political context, the, the sources of suffering are many. The, the possibility of overcoming them completely is not even remotely within our horizon, quite the contrary uh, in many respects. So I think we are much better off trying to grapple with the notion of the good life and ask ourselves, what would a good life be like with adversity and with suffering within it? How can we cultivate a reflective coping towards experiences of suffering that don't destroy us, but um, perhaps edify us in some respect. So what is really important is to not deny or try and eliminate the, the possibility of adversity, because fundamentally, I think that the key word here is vulnerability. It's not that necessarily affliction will strike, but that we are fundamentally and uh, profoundly vulnerable to affliction at any given moment. And many of us, I think, work very hard to try and cultivate the illusion that we are, we are not. And that illusion, I think, comes at a considerable cost. So what we ought to do is think about, prepare ourselves, if we like, uh, perform philosophical exercises of various types to try and prepare ourselves for what that affliction will do to us when it happens, when old age comes, when infirmity comes, when we lose a, a loved one in some way. And the reason uh, I'm, I'm saying this so emphatically is because I've spent a lot of time thinking about the case of illness, which I think is a really paradigmatic example of precisely that type of reflective cope coping, or at least the, the invitation we might have to reflectively cope with illness in ways that don't destroy us, that don't let us surrender to this picture of illness as this monolithic and uh, interminable suffering, but a much more creative and compassionate towards ourselves approach, I think. Okay, thanks very much. A bit of adversity to deal with uh, in terms of, I think, some children trotting around the I background somewhere, them. trying to disturb us. But that's the kind of adversity which we can happily um, deal with as, a, as part and parcel of the, the rich tapestry of life. Um, Susie, uh, could you like to share your initial thoughts? I, I'm very close to what Harvey's saying because a problem for me it is the terms of this debate pose adversity and suffering as optional or unnecessary constructs and kind of assumes a measuring stick and that we've labeled the weights incorrectly so that we're in an avoidable cultural and personal fog, which I think is, is the wrong way to look at it. That seems to me to do away with cultural practices, not just religion, but the arts and scientific endeavors in which the search for self-expression and collective expression occur. And we make art and science because we are striving in expressive species. We make change, we transform what is, we build new practices and thoughts out of earlier created and lived structures. And as adolescents and adults, we make relationships motivated by hope. Now, we wouldn't have a word like hope if we didn't have a word like disappointment or despair or 
missing or things gone wrong. And we search for recognition, for enlightenment, for connection. If we fail to find what we seek, it can hurt. We can be despairing, we can be angry, or we can try again. And we often find ourselves destined to repeat in emotional terms what we've already experienced so that good experiences breed good experiences while difficult experiences incline one to difficult experiences. But with Harvey, I would say that we're all vulnerable. And I don't think of vulnerability only about adversity. I think that We've got the wrong notion of what constitutes happiness, that happiness is, for our culture, a very synthetic, like MSG, as opposed to proper chicken broth. It's like a sprinkle of something where somebody says, have a great day, and I want to say, no, I just want to have the day I'm having, frankly, because happiness itself comes out of the denial of the complexity of our emotional experiences. And that this particular moment, I think, is tipping us into thinking there is something about being victims that we need to take on board, which I, I'll leave it there because that's probably my three minutes. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm sure we'd come back to, to some of that um, later. Um, Anders, I mean, Anders is, is, is a transhumanist. And of course, I think that most of us would, well, if we know anything about transhumanists, would say they tend to be of the view that, you know, that you, you tend to take a, a view that people are too uh, willing to accept the human condition as it is. And we should just, we, we can do better, right? So um, I don't know, I don't want to preempt your answer too much, but do you, if the question is, you know, the adversity and suffering has a value, are we at the very least overstating its value? Because that's the best way to deal with the fact that at the moment we can't change it. So I think Suffering doesn't have value, but overcoming adversity is actually quite important, both individually and collectively. And when I got invited to be on this panel, that happened at an interesting point in time, because I was stuck because of COVID in Stockholm, caring for my frail elderly mother, who was really suffering. She was in a great deal of pain, she was sick, and there is, of course, something very different when you're actually and having a family member experience something versus writing a philosophy paper about it. The interesting thing is things went well. She had some major surgery. She lost one of her feet, but she was much better afterwards. And we actually had a nice conversation over a bit of wine about that experience in the light of this invitation. Uh, and we both generally agreed that she was a much nicer person now than mm -hmm. just a few weeks but also we both agreed that was probably not because she had learned something profound from the experience. No, she was nasty because she was in pain and suffering and uh, feeling really bad. Now she was no longer in pain and she was actually managing to get stuff uh, done. On the other hand, I would argue she's a wise woman, but that didn't come from that particular illness. That came from a lot of other adversities and experiences throughout her life, some of which were very painful, others which were very neutral. So I think what is actually going on is that we actually need actual tough challenges but with stakes that matter to us. But the pain and suffering, they are kind of a cheap, cheap way of making something matter. If I'm suffering, I need to deal with it. I can't avoid it. That's an easy way, just like MSG in some sense, uh, to make something have an intensity. But there are other ways of making things matter. If I'm in love, somebody else matters to me too. Regardless of uh, any, any potential for vulnerability or suffering, they matter because of who they are. 
So I think the important part here is we want to learn how to overcome adversity. Uh, and that probably requires training. It might be both fictional training, like playing games. It might be reading fiction, or it might be the small games you play on the schoolyard or in the student politics, over to the actual games of real politics and de dealing with actual language in life. But suffering is not really the important thing. That's the bad thing we're trying to avoid. And the goal, of course, of all this overcoming is becoming better at handling temporary suffering to get to greater rewards or be able to handle life in a better way. But I do think that even if we manage to one day turn ourselves into a suffering, a free, secure posthumous that wouldn't have to suffer from illness, we would still find a lot of stuff that are suboptimal, frustrate our goals and complicate our lives. So we certainly get challenges. I think the fact that we're today living in a relatively secure world means that, well, we're not struggling every day to survive day to day. That has actually helped us develop some of our virtues. We might be going soft in some important directions, but sometimes it's good to have had a soft background. It's just that we also want to have that resilience for when something goes badly wrong. And that is, of course, I think, the thing COVID demonstrates is occasionally you get this global big disaster and then you actually need to find a way around it. But this is just like handling fire. You don't want to have fires too often. You want to have fire extinguishers and the fire signals. But you want to be ready in the case of a fire. And in that case, you want to train a bit for it. But you probably shouldn't be training by being in a house on fire. Okay. Thanks. For, thanks very much for that. So I think, you know, adversity, adversity, yes, challenges, yes, suffering itself, um, not of value. I think I want to pick away a little bit this issue of suffering being an essential part of life, because I think um, Javi and Susie, uh, certainly, I think Andrew's a degree at, at the very mo at the way we are at the moment, it's an unavoidable part of life. So in that sense, it's an essential part of life. But there is this question of whether or not it would be better if, if it wasn't, right? And also, I guess here then, you have to also think about what kinds of suffering. And I think this is, this is interesting because I don't know whether it's a reflection of our times that in recent years, there's been quite a lot of resurgence of interest in, in stoicism. And I think a lot of the attraction of stoicism is that the, the promise is it actually removes what Javi was talking about, vulnerability. It makes us maybe not invulnerable, but it's, it's supposed to make us more invulnerable, less vulnerable to the things which are external to ourselves to become more reliant on our own, own selves. And I don't know whether that is a manifestation of something in our culture which makes us less comfortable with vulnerability. I was going to go and have you first on this, but Susie's gesticulating wildly here. See, I think there is a really interesting relationship between thinking about stoicism in modern times and vulnerability and suffering, because I think they're related to each other. I don't think you deny your vulnerability and your stoical because you suppressed it. I think you accept your vulnerability and that allows you to have it both in a private, but also an intimate sense, if it makes sense, with, with a friend or a lover or a partner or whoever. So I think, I don't think this should be posed as one or the other. I think they are very, very related. Now, maybe this is because I'm a therapist and can't contain their feelings and they can't contain their suffering, whether it's rage or sorrow or whatever it is. The, the point of therapy is, it, in some sense, but that feeling to be transformed and live inside of them as the hurt or whatever, whatever the 
fundamental feelings are and for them to then contain it. So I think it, they're two sides of the same coin, really, rather than oppositional. So, so I mean, I mean, happy. Let's turn, turn, turn to you on this. I mean, when, when you see it as being you know, unavoidable, it's not something we choose, we can all agree with that. But is that something that we kind of, is, is just unfortunate and we have to deal with it always? Or do you think it's, it's kind of good that there's some suffering in the world, you know? Um, and I suppose that's the thing I'm not quite clear about when people talk about suffering being beneficial, whether they think uh, we have to make them, we ha- we di- we ha- we- it's there, we have to deal with it, we have to make the most of it, we have to sort of grow through it. But would it actually be better if we just didn't have it at all? I mean, would your life have been better if you didn't have this real problem to overcome with your own health, for example? I think the question could be, can we, you know, if we were to um, think of adversity as a form of post-traumatic growth or edification, one obvious question is, well, aren't there easier ways to be edified uh, or, to, or to grow without having to have the trauma first? It's an interesting one. And I think I would say that in terms of life as, as we know it, a life without adversity would be so far removed from anything recognizable to us that it would it would just operate under such radically different conditions that it's just quite hard to imagine what it might be like to the point where you might think is it even useful beyond being a you know a, a sort of fantasy i suppose to think about that um and i think you know i'll i'll, I'll call in freud if i may on, on two points the first is you know he famously said i'm not a pessimist i'm i'm just a realistic person i kind of see what's what reality is like what people are doing to each other you know writing back in the early 1930s for example um and and i i I can just offer this 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 idea that we we have to help each other through these kinds of situations but we mustn't delude ourselves into thinking reality is any prettier than than it is okay so that's that's one thing the second thing which i think is profoundly important that he said. He said, well, you can't get the good things if you're not risking the bad things. So if you want to love someone, that love entails with it the possibility of loss. If, you, if you're invested in an ideal or a goal, the risk of it not coming good or falling apart or disappointing you is always there. So it's, it's, it's really just the kind of the most fundamental emotional calculus. If you want to love, if you want to get attached, if you want to gain, you have to make yourself vulnerable in that way. And you're, you're obviously making yourself vulnerable to the possibility of suffering and disappointment and pain. And so in a way, it's a, it's a, it's a package. And I, I don't think it's really very, I don't know how productive it is to ask ourselves, what, what would a human life look like without that whole that whole aspect because it's not clear to me that it would resemble in any way how we live and who we are now. Well, I mean, that's interesting. I will turn to Anders in a minute because I think there are, there are kind of different kinds of suffering, right? And now there are certain kinds. I think you alluded to towards the second part of what you were talking about, like you know relationships, projects, things where the possibility of failure is built in, and if you don't make yourself vulnerable to those failures, you also don't give yourself the opportunity or the benefits, and that's true. 
There are other things like, you know, disease and illness where that's not the case. If we could snap our, if, if I could snap our fingers and, and get rid of, um, you know, relationships and projects because they have the risk of suffering, no one would do that because we want the rewards. If I could snap my fingers and there's no more cancer, there's no more of your lung disease, there's no, most of us would say we would do that. So it seems like, although there are some sufferings are tied in um, with, with good things and it's a package, in other ways it isn't. And I'm wondering whether in, with that light, if we turn to someone like Anders who's a transhumanist, they're not perhaps quite the, maybe not quite the completely sunny uh, utopians that we might think, that you want to get rid of some kinds of suffering, right? But you, even you think you can't get rid of all suffering for the reasons that Javi have explained. Um, do you want yeah. to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so my friend David Pierce, <clears throat> he wrote uh, a big manifesto in the late 90s, the hedonistic imperative, where, that, where he laid out his project about getting rid of suffering and only maximizing pleasure. And of course, the obvious uh, argument is, wait a minute, how do you even function in such a world? And he is arguing that there are <clears throat> information-sensitive gradients of bliss that would be directing uh, the post-humans in this world. Now, how that would actually work is an interesting technical, biological, philosophical problem, which I don't think anybody, at least not Dave, thinks has actually been solved. But I think there is something interesting that there are some forms of suffering that are instrumental. If I hurt myself, pain signals should not just tell me that I need to be careful about with the wounded part of my body, but also that I should definitely stop doing whatever is hurting it. And that links necessarily over to an emotional system. There is an emotional component to pain, which is where it ties up with actual suffering rather than just telling me that, oh, I stopped my foot. Now, we might want to modulate that emotional part, especially when it's not relevant. But there is other forms of suffering, like uh, social pain. If I'm feeling uh, uh, lonely, so part of my brain gets activated that actually overlap with the, uh, the emotional part of the pain system, even though there is actually not at all any physical component. Now, the really interesting thing is also, if I get disappointed, something was as, not as good as I had expected it to be, then I also get this kind of activate. So that is a kind of common pathway. Now, we want to be information sensitive. If bad things happen, I don't care then I'm kind of failing at life. I want to fine tune this so I don't get that unnecessary suffering. And the really tricky part of suffering is that it's something that becomes part of us. I am suffering. One of the best ways of avoiding uh, pain and suffering is of course to say there is suffering and uh, say that there is no self. It's not tied to me in particular. That's a quite useful trick you know, sometimes when you're at the dentist or something. But uh, quite a lot of important things need to be tied to our identity. We can, of course, argue that actually maybe having that cohesive self isn't that, uh, haven't the Buddhists been telling us that we should give up on that? And maybe there actually be other ways of organizing how one functions that are utterly different. And again, very interesting options here. But I do think that, yeah, a suffering-free world would have to run on a, uh, in such a different way that we would say those inhabitants are not not even not quite human but actually quite different and we on the other hand get a, a world that has much less suffering and i think yeah and we can still probably be recognizably human because what i think we want to do is deal with the meaningful forms of adversity the stuff that actually matters quite a lot of the pains and aches we're getting are just because of uh, biology and, uh, telling us a signal over and over again, 
even when we already got a message. And we want to figure out ways of focus on what matters for us to fix them. I'm happy to come back to you on that because I picked up and then we come to Susie because I, I did pick up on what you were saying without giving you the chance to immediately come back. So is yeah. there something you want to pick up on that? Um, so, so three quick things. I mean, the first on, on you said eradication of cancer. I think, again, if we want to um, conduct a thought experiment, we have to make it the case that it is still relevant enough to how we, we live now. If we make it so fantastical, uh, so as not to, you know, resemble us in any uh, in any deep sense. They're, they've got it's got a limited effect again beyond being a nice a nice fantasy. And if you look at the, what philosophers have said about the possibility of immortality, I think it, a lot of them concluded, most famously Bernard Williams, that it would just be it would be intolerable, intolerable and, and very tedious to be immortal. Um, and this, the fact that we are embodied and that our bodies are vulnerable to affliction and disease is such an integral part of who we are and such an important thing to contend with and to come to terms with that um, I, I think d denying it is, 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 is just, again, I don't think it's, it's philosophically productive. I think we might empirically want to test it though. We might actually want to have a bunch of immortals checking whether Williams was right and so, and so on. But yes, it's going to be relatively far in the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, when, when you start unpacking it, you say, well, what, what do you mean immortal? If, if What sort of organism would you even be so that you could never die under any circumstances? And, you, you know, you've got to be quite specific and flesh out what kind of immortality you're talking about. Is it the Jonathan Swift type where you, you become increasingly decrepit until your life isn't worth living? Or um, is it the kind of... Williams type, where you just get stuck at the age of 42 and you carry on as the kind of Elena Macropolis case, or is it something else altogether? But it's got to resemble how we are now. And we are, you know, fleshly and vulnerable in all the relevant respects. Okay, we're, going to come, we're going to come later, perhaps, to the, what possibilities there may be for um, things to change from that. But I, you did have two other points, Happy. So perhaps yeah. you could come to the that. second. Um, I was just thinking of Val Plumwood, who was an eco feminist who got attacked by a crocodile in uh, the Northern Territories in Australia and wrote a very moving piece that said, some, said a lot of things. One of the things was um, it made her realize she was just part of the food chain and that it was okay for a crocodile to try and eat her, that we are not you know, above nature in that respect. Um, and the third, going back to the Stoics, again, this idea that we can rid ourselves of suffering. It's what we want to do is to, uh, practice philosophy in a way that helps us reduce suffering, diminish the amount of mental noise and anguish we experience. But that er complete eradication is, is an ideal. It's not something we, we can you know, hope to reach by doing a little bit of meditation. So, so again, I think a healthy dose of uh, realism is, is helpful here. Yeah. Susie, you've been waiting patiently. I don't know if this helps us at all, but I suppose I think about cultural and political suffering. I mean, in other words, the structures that we live in as being very, very cruel. I don't really have a problem with us trying to reform them. In fact, I would love us to be able to reform them so that we don't ha live in such deep inequalities, okay? And I think those inequalities cause phenomenal individual and collective suffering, wherever you end up. It's very different where you end up. But so I can see, a but the interpersonal suffering 
and the intrapsychic suffering, I think, is inevitable. And I, I don't know if we could divide it. I'm, I'm kind of even happy for the transhumanists to give a go at thinking about social structures. I still want to be material, though. I don't want to be decorporized. I, I don't want to be dematerialized. I want to be a human being, as Harvey says, with a body, living from a body, which means that I'm sensing. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't mind us being able to think about how we were able really to, to change the structures which cause so much damn suffering. And I know for me as a youngster coming into second wave feminism or the civil rights movement really, was really transformative in terms of changing personal suffering into collective understanding and then personal, I suppose in today's language, which I hate, would be growth, right? But it didn't stop the internal, certain internalizations of hurt, which are going to happen just because I'm a human being. So that's what I want to say. It seems to me that our culture is, is just full of stories. We, we, we want to hear about how suffering promotes growth. And why wouldn't we? Because we're going to suffer and we want to know there's a good outcome. And I wonder, are we too unwilling to accept uh, the fact that that's not always the case. And so, I mean, I don't know, what, what do you think? Do, do you think that we, we're, we're too keen to kind of see the possibility of learning and growth in this as somehow... I mean, I think we do want a story. I think we want a story, but we don't want just a rags to riches story. We want mm. a story that goes to the side and surprises us. Right. That's why we keep making stories, because if we just wanted and, all, and we all lived happily ever after, it wouldn't have enough in it for us. I think we want something that's got texture and something unexpected. I think we I think human beings want as we're a curious species. We have curiosity. We don't want the same thing. But, we, but it seems people do want the same fundamental arc. They want adversity and redemption. They want that redemptive conclusion, don't they? They want an interesting conclusion. <laughs> they want some... I, I, I mean, I suppose I, this is where I would go back to Freud, is to trans, transform human misery into ordinary unhappiness. Mm. I think that is a very, very profound thought because from there you can have some really interesting things happen. So I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know if Jews are into redemption, you know, particularly secular Jews. I don't come from the tradition of redemption. I come from, you struggle. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are, I think there, there are different narratives, right? I mean, the, this, this, this stories or, or, or narratives or the, the way in which we, 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 we think about adversity, it, it, it's not just, you know, suffering and, and redemption. I mean, I think the thing to really militate against is this um, cultural tendency to, to bright side, as Barbara Ehrenreich calls it. Mm. This idea that, you know, she, she, she wrote this book called Smile or Die, where she talks yeah. about being diagnosed with breast cancer, not being allowed to say anything negative about how she was angry about falling ill because, you know, she's going to upset other people and she could just make the cancer worse and all, all, all sorts of stuff like that. And she was saying, I don't want to be thinking like that. I don't want to be in this cultural vice telling me what I can and can't say. So really, we, we ought to, I think, more than anything, militate against social scripts telling us how to go through adversity. And you're right that the story of edification or post-traumatic growth is, is one could potentially be one such um, one such response. But the important thing I think to remember is to say, okay, you're given this adversity. Until recently, we just said, well, 
your life's just destroyed with, say, with respect to disability. And now we're saying, no, actually, again, flourishing and the good life are not in the sole possession of those with perfect um, bodily health. Now we're more open to that thought. And that's, that's progress. You know, that's a good thing. That enables a lot of people with imperfect or diseased or disabled bodies to say, I've got a claim on this notion of the good life. I've got a right to strive. I've got, you know, I, I can be included in that too. And I think that's politically and personally extremely important. Yeah, and then yeah, I think it's very good point. Something about hope. Actually, the thinking that, oh, there is hope for me, even though I'm now currently in a very bad situation. That's where these stories are extremely valuable. The problem is, of course, most of the stories are pretty bad stories, like uh, the, the, the everything else. Uh, there, you basically have a hero's journey narrative, which is, again, not the only story, but half of Hollywood has kind of figured out that, okay, we, we all make movies according to that one, because the past ones have been big successes. So it even limits the way you might actually grow uh, out of it or handle it and turn it into mere normal unhappiness or all the other possibilities. I, I think there is a real risk uh, that uh, people narrow off a little bit too much how you're supposed to be handling adversity. Um, but do, do, you, do you think, though, that you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a culture, people do criticise younger generations, you know, the so-called snowflake generation, etc. Do you think there's anything to this idea that you know, we, we've gone a bit soft and, and we, we, we just don't accept adversity as a natural, normal part of life. We expect it's going to be um, rainbows and uh, things like that. I mean, Susie, what do you think? Well, I, I guess I think that adolescence is just a terrible time to live through. And, and so is early adulthood. I certainly wouldn't ever want to have to go back there again. And finding your people and finding your tribe. And, you know, in my day was absolute hell, particularly if you were not kind of the straightest you know, finding Bob Dylan, although it was just extraordinary, or the civil right, extraordinary, because they've, I think it's really different because there is this whole production of the notion of, I've got to go back to what I said in the beginning, of the production of happiness and the production of, I'm, of ambition. I've got to be a this and I've got to be a that and I've got to, um, I've got to be happy all the time. And I think that is, it's not that it's, we're too soft. I, I think it's, it's just a misperception of what constitutes being human, which is it takes a long time to find your people. It takes a long time to learn enough about yourself to not do things that really hurt you continually. It, finds a, it takes a really long time. And it's very hard, I think, because if you live online, which kids do, you're, and you're looking for a community of interest, it's very hard to find one that doesn't then box you in as opposed to continue to say, yeah, you're going to be alienated for a hell of a long time. So I think there's something about the conditions of late capital and consumerism that mean the production of self is, is very, very difficult to manage any, any kind of feeling of authenticity. And that's where, I, that's why I think that people end up in, having descriptions of mental health problems, which I don't actually necessarily think are mental health problems. I think they're ennui. 
Yeah, it's also called called living, isn't it? It's interesting that I mean, when you said about you know, it takes a long time to find your tribe. I mean, and and maybe it may take a long time to find that you don't have one. For example, correct. I I, I, I remember many years ago, I was at a school at a conference, and somebody gave this little speech in which he told all these sixth formers present to you know, um, sort of close their eyes and think of their passion and then to hold on to their passion for the rest of their lives. And I felt just obliged to sort of say afterwards. By the way, it's okay if you don't know what that passion is or you don't have Absolutely. one. You know? uh, but it, these, the expectations, and they say the expectations are around, you know, achievement and having a very strong self-directed goal, etc. I don't know if Javier Anders want to come in on this point at all. Yeah, I think there is something about expectation management. And th- this is, of course, a real problem because I think, in some sense, we have set enormously high expectations for how the world could be and how our lives uh, can go. And then a lot of people are feeling very disappointed, partially justly, but also because expectations just got set ridiculously high, whether that is how good sex and romance is or how uh, the world works. As a transhumanist, I, of course, had this annoying problem that, oh, I'm a 48-year-old transhumanist. When I was uh, in the night and night, we were expecting life extension and nanotechnology to take off any year now. <laughs> Still kind of waiting, and my hair is starting to turn gray here. Um, uh, so there is something interesting about managing expectations in a sane manner. And that's, of course, also part of what I think is important in overcoming adversity, learning how to both expect the worst, and prepare a bit for that, but also have that hope that things can go well. And in practice, there is a lot of other stuff that usually happens. Now, I think the people who talk most loudly today and moan most loudly online quite often need to work on their expectation management. But I do think there is also something interesting that maybe we do need occasion to have a fire drill. I personally think the COVID pandemic might have been horrendous but it's such a good dress rehearsal for something truly nasty. The, the, the things with the team of biosecurity and, and the people at my institute are thinking about as worst case scenarios are way, way worse. Mm-hmm. And if we can do this dress rehearsal of seeing what we should be doing in the case of a bad pandemic, good. It could be worse and we should try to learn from it. The real problem is of course, trying to learn from it. Because I bet once we're all vaccinated and everything opens up, we're going to so much want to never hear a word about that darn virus ever again. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's the point where we actually should take those things and put it into routines and make sure that next time something equally bad happens, we can keep perhaps a suitably stiff upper lip and do something about it. But the human nature is, of course, to want to forget it. So remember that we forgot the 1918 pandemic we, we have our job set up for us yeah it seemed to me that even last summer most people had forgotten there was a pandemic going on <laughs> as soon as lockdown goes down expectations very very important because again one of the recurring themes here is that, you know there are different types of suffering some avoidable and some aren't and perhaps one of the more avoidable ones is the ones that are actually the result of, of, of false expectations so, for example, there's this thing which uh, comes from Buddhism about, you know, the, the, the second arrow of suffering, right? So the first arrow of suffering is whatever, you break your leg, you get your illness, whatever happens. But the second arrow is thinking, oh, my God, why did this happen? You know, this shouldn't have happened, et cetera, et cetera. That second layer of suffering actually often creates more anguish than the first. Pain is pain. You can deal with it. But when you're, when you're thinking to yourself, oh, this is awful, this is terrible, how could this have happened? You know, that, that on an emotional level can be more difficult and maybe 
that's the kind of suffering that someone like Susan. Right. And there is with. even a third arrow where you're also afraid of disappointment. Uh, mm. My dad was very much into trying to make me lower my expectations because he was so afraid of disappointment. And the problem was, of course, that after a while I started becoming afraid of being disappointed. Then I, I rebelled in the other direction. So now I'm totally willing to be disappointed. <laughs> if we only get half of the transhumanist vision. Well, so good, great, great, great. But we do make a lot of arrows we shoot at ourselves. Yeah. So you've already said quite a bit, Anders. So we know you're not um, completely, uh, uh, you're not a complete lunatic, at least. You may be a bit of a lunatic, I don't know. But you're not a complete lunatic. You know that some suffering is going to be inevitable because of disappointment relationships, etc. But as a transhumanist, how far do you think we can go in eliminating suffering? You know, could, could we go a lot further than perhaps people think. And, and actually, you know, I've teased you a bit here. Do you find it a bit frustrating that you, as a transhumanist, you're almost like patronized and told that you're just, um, you've got childish and unrealistic expectations about the future? Well, I, I think uh, to, half of it, I think is appropriate and half of it, yeah, that's annoying. But <laughs> the, the point is of course, yeah, optimists are the ones that typically tend to uh, produce change. Pessimists are the ones that also point out the bad directions of change. So you need both kinds. And I think we actually have an overly pessimistic culture uh, that is very afraid of trying and risking things. Generally, I think we can probably, in some sense, get re completely rid of suffering. But the question is, what prices are we willing to pay? I think uh, having to take painkillers and getting rid of normal pain, we find, okay, that's good. Some of them are unhealthy. Opiates, okay, we need to get rid of addictiveness. What if we could modify our minds so we're mostly feeling bliss uh, and so on? At some point you might say, wait a minute, now it's no longer human. And I'm probably going to continue towards the weirder and weirder and weirder cases uh, I'm writing in a paper where you end up with something that's, that's not individual, that's not even like you. At some point you will say, yeah, we are not interested in going further than that. But I do think that the space of possibilities is much bigger than what humanity has experienced. And given the, the peaks and lows of human experience, there might be equally or even greater ones out there. And that's worth exploring. We might want to be rather careful about it. And I don't think everybody should just rush off to what looks like the first big thing. But people are unlikely to do that. Most people definitely don't want to mess around with the neurons or genes too much. They're going to leave that to the weirdos. And then hopefully we can learn a bit from their experience. Yeah, I suppose that's it, isn't it? We don't all have to go in the same direction. Maybe there could be experiments in living. Um, Susie Havi, easy you can come in first on this. I mean, are, are, there, are there certain forms of suffering which you think we quite rightly should just unequivocally be looking to to er pretty much eradicate, you know, and that sure, some, some suffering is connected with good things as a package, but what, how far do you think, you know, human society and, and could go in, in severely reducing it? Do you think it's a realistic possibility? I, I would say one thing, I will um, go the Epicurean route and say, look, so we, we don't have to be slaves to our desires and the ensuing disappointments that Anders was just talking about it. We, so Epicurus strongly advises us to scrutinize our desires and to ask which of them are necessary and what he calls natural and which of them are artificial or unnecessary or unnatural. And what he means by that is ones that are 
really um, insatiable. He says, what happens with when you cultivate or you are a slave to unnatural desires, what you try to do is be um, as wealthy as you can, but you can always be wealthier, be as famous as you can or as popular as you can, but you can always be more. And he says, these types of desires are characterized by the fact that you could never ever achieve them or fulfill them completely. So you're much better off suppressing them or overcoming them and saying, okay, let me focus on the ones that are, you know, are conducive to, to, to the good life. And I think that's a, that's a really kind of um, universal, you know, therapeutic philosophy offering that, that, that has received not really enough attention. I think people are disappointed because they are not thinking, they're not critical towards the, the desires they are allowing themselves to, to cultivate. And yep. You know, we see, sorry, go ahead, Susie. That, that, that's kind of my general. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. But that requires serious structural change because that is the basis of late capital, is to stoke desire that cannot be met. I mean, it, there, it, um, so I, 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 the problem is one of how we do our social organization. I mean, I, I, that, that seems to me that, of course, we can't do what Epicurus says because we are continually blandished to whether it's consume more or respond more to our, to everything that happened, every blip on our machine or whatever it is. I mean, so that's one thing. The other thing I want to sort of say, which is, I see cruelty every single day. I don't. I don't mean now the social cruelty, which we talked about before, but the cruelty between parents and children. I mean, parents enact cruelty. Every parent does it. They don't mean to do it, but parents also have a very hard time being supported in our culture. And so the kinds of um, disappointment, not disappointment, the kinds of things they foist on their children are really difficult. And that makes for children who grow up to be people who are not okay in themselves. We, I think we, we, we know that. So that seems to me something that needs to be addressed in, in this kind of discussion. I don't know how to discuss yeah. it from a philosophical perspective though. That's a great note to end on, Susie. Thank you very much to Susie, Javi and Anders. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.